You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Three, two, one... But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer. Jim Calhoun, NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. It is Monday, January 3rd, 2022, baby. I hope everybody is doing well. I hope everybody had a great holiday weekend. Hope everybody had a great New Year's Eve, New Year's Day. Hope everybody enjoyed the college football that we got over the last four or five days. Fun show today, loaded show today. We are going to open with the college football playoff. I would love to lie and say that I have some incredible, interesting, unique take on these two games. Really not all that much to say. We'll talk about each why the games went the way that they did. And then from there, we'll obviously give a first glance at Georgia-Alabama. But again, I'd love to be super unique and interesting. I just don't know what's there. From there, we'll hit on a few different topics. I will start with Matt Corral. Uh, the, the, the ankle injury heard around the world. The ankle injury that set off a thousand different takes about opting out. Should you opt out? Should you not? I'll share my quick thoughts on that. But then that will lead into that Rose Bowl game that was right before the Matt Corral Old Miss Baylor Rose, uh, Sugar Bowl because that Rose Bowl was an instant classic. And I do think... For everyone who said that these bowl games that are not in the playoff are meaningless, for all the, these people that said guys don't care if they're not in the playoff, all you had to do was watch a couple minutes of that Rose Bowl featuring Utah and Ohio State. And I think in many ways, I do think as bad as the college football playoffs were, I do believe that I can make you rethink how you think about bowl games and their importance uh, in the modern climate, even outside of the college football playoffs. So we'll wrap with Matt Corral. We'll wrap with the Rose Bowl. But with that said, Let's get to the topic of the day. And the topic of the day is that we had a college football playoff on Friday night and Friday afternoon. And it's funny, right? We spend five months watching these games. And you really, it's a six, seven-month process dating back to the SEC media days, Pac-12, Big Ten, Big 12 media days, ACC media days, whatever. You start with media days, fall camp, who wins this job, who wins that job, who's good, who's bad. You get to week one, you get to... And you go through this process of month after month after month after month, game after game, week after week, day after day, to get to that final four in the college football playoff, and we just get two complete duds. As Alabama beats Cincinnati 27-6, Georgia beats Michigan 34-11, to 
in two games that were not nearly as competitive as even the final scores would indicate, and the final scores indicate that they weren't even close. Uh, and so what I would say even before we get into these games is that I love coming on this show. I love you guys allowing me to have this platform. And I love coming on and being totally unique and totally interesting, totally fantastic. You know, like I just love coming on this show and hopefully making you guys and girls think about sports in ways that maybe you haven't before. I don't really know what there is to say about these two games because there were four teams in these college football playoff games. Two were clearly superior. And now we have the Alabama-Georgia National Championship for the second time in five seasons. And we'll see if this one is at least at least as competitive and interesting as the last one. And certainly, hopefully, more interesting and competitive than the college football playoff semifinals. With that said, though, I do still have a couple thoughts on each of the individual games. And then we'll kind of do a quick first glance at Georgia-Alabama. But with that said, uh, let's start with the Alabama-Cincinnati game. It was the early game. First game of the day. And I'll be honest, right? I... I, I I don't know that I bought into the narrative. I picked Alabama to win by double figures. I think the score I said on Friday's show or Thursday's show was 34-24 to 24 as a final score. So I didn't think Alabama would be threatened. I didn't think there was any real idea that they were going to lose this game. But what I would also say is I didn't think Cincinnati could put up a challenge. I didn't think Cincinnati could put up a fight. And they really didn't. And it's not Cincinnati's fault, and we'll talk about it in a minute. But you know when I knew that Cincinnati was in trouble? It was the first drive of the game. And it was like the first five, six plays of the game because if you were not watching at home, if you got to the if you got to the TV a few minutes late, here is what Alabama did on its opening drive. First play, six-yard run for Brian Robinson. Second play, three-yard run for Brian Robinson. Third play, five-yard run for Brian Robinson. Fourth play, seven-yard run for Brian Robinson. On and on and on and on and on. The first series, the first uh, possession of the game ends with a touchdown pass for Alabama, but it started... A t- it was a 10-play drive. The first nine plays were all runs, all for positive yardage. And I said, oh, boy, Cincinnati is screwed because Alabama realizes that they are just bigger and tougher and more physical than a very good Cincinnati team. This is not that Cincinnati's bad. It's not that Cincinnati's overrated. But Alabama, I think they probably flipped on the tape for the first, uh, you know, the first time probably three, four weeks ago. They said, we can run the ball right at this team, and there's nothing they can do about it. And so that was really the big takeaway, was if I have any reaction to this game, you know what it is? I believe that Alabama looked at this game as basically a tune-up game for whoever they are going to play in the national championship. And I'll tell you a quick funny side story, then we'll get back to this game. But I remember about three, four years ago, it was one of the years that Clemson played Alabama in the college football playoff. I think they've played four times at this point, once in the semifinal, three times in the national championship game. Twice Clemson has won, but once Alabama won the year they had Derrick Henry. Why do I bring it up? It is because I remember somebody pretty plugged in in football telling me this. They said Clemson essentially uses the ACC regular season to ramp up for the playoff. They know that they don't have to be on their AAAAA plus game every single week in the ACC, that sometimes a C minus, a C plus, a B minus game is going to get them a win. And so instead of worrying about being perfect every single week, 
They have instead decided to use, this is three, four, five years ago, but that they've decided to use the ACC regular season to ramp up and get ready for the playoff. And so if they don't look great in week six against Pittsburgh, that's okay. If they don't look great in week nine against Syracuse, that's okay. Just win the game and work on the things that you need to get better at as the games ramp up and the games have more significance. And so I thought of that when I was watching Alabama-Cincinnati. It's no disrespect to Cincinnati. It's not that they're not a great program. It's not that Luke Fickle is not a great coach. But there was just a clear size, speed, physicality, toughness, athleticism advantage, and Cincinnati had no answer for it. This wasn't the Peach Bowl last year where Georgia was coming in. Are they motivated? Are they not? This was a college football semifinal with a chance to win and play for a national championship. You knew that Alabama was going to come out focused, and once you knew that they were focused and that they weren't taking Cincinnati lightly, there was really no chance, and Alabama was going to do whatever they wanted. That, by the way, not just my opinion, that's kind of the fact, okay? I, I don't know if we have Cincinnati fans that listen to this show. I don't think you disagree with me, but even if you do, just look at what Alabama did from a statistical perspective in this game. Just complete domination, and again, I believe early and often they realized we can do whatever we want, and there is nothing that that team can do about it. In total, Alabama finishes with 482 yards of total offense, 301 yards rushing, Brian Robinson himself had over 200 yards rushing. And oh, by the way, Alabama averaged over six and a half yards per carry. Bryce Young just 17 of 28 passing for 181 yards. That last stat to me is maybe the most important because Alabama towards the end of the season, as they struggled, as they couldn't get, uh, you know, they couldn't put away a lot of these great teams or a lot of these teams in the SEC, excuse me, it seemed like they relied increasingly on Bryce Young to win them games. I looked it up and the stats back me up on this one. You go back to that Georgia game, Bryce Young threw the ball 44 times. You go back to that Auburn double overtime game, Bryce Young threw the ball 50 times. He threw it 40 times in a win against Arkansas. And so I bring that up because, again, it was very clear that Nick Saban knew that to beat Auburn, he had to put it in the hands of Bryce Young. To beat Georgia, he needed Bryce Young to be great. To beat Cincinnati, he did not need to do that, and that was what kind of stood out to me. Again, thought that he kind of pulled back. I don't think he wanted to put a lot on tape. I think he just wanted to get out with a win no matter how good or bad it looked and get ready for either Georgia or Michigan. The thing that I would say that also kind of impressed me about this game from Alabama's perspective is exactly what I just talked about, is the idea, and this is another kind of little story time with Torres here, but what, it, what is so impressive about Alabama is I think they are, they're almost like an NFL team in the perspective that over the last three, four, five years, they have figured out ways to beat you in any way that they need to, okay? And I had a, a football coach that kind of listens to this podcast, listens to my radio show. He kind of, you know, tweeted me, DM me on the side and kind of tipped me off this. But he said, look at Alabama. The difference between Alabama and everybody else is that they can change the game plan completely from week to week, game to game, depending on the opponent. It's something that great NFL coaches are known for. It's something that Bill Belichick is known for. I mean, think about Bill Belichick. A few weeks ago, they're playing Buffalo in 40-degree winds, and, and the New England Patriots run, uh, uh, throw the ball three times the entire game, run the ball every other, game, every other play, and get a win. 
Then there's other games where they need Mac Jones to throw the ball 35, 40 times per game. But the great coaches can adjust based on what they, what you do, take away what you do well, you know, attack your weakness, and that's essentially what Alabama did on Saturday. They knew they did not need Al- they did not need Bryce Young to throw the ball 40 times, so instead they did the opposite. Instead, they knew that Cincinnati has great corners. They knew that if you pass the ball, you're putting yourself at risk. And oh, by the way, Bryce Young did throw an interception, and so Nick Saban said, look, I don't care how we win. I don't care what it looks like. I just want to get out with a W. But what was so impressive is their ability to completely change how they play based on the opponent. As we start to look ahead to Georgia, I think that's kind of a concern if you like Georgia in that game. Is Georgia, there's only one way that they can beat you. They got to run the ball. They got to play great defense. They got to keep the game in the teens or the 20s or at least keep you in the teens or the 20s because when it gets to 24, 27, 31 points, they can't necessarily keep up. And in defense of Georgia, it's not just Georgia, right? Michigan. What happened when we figured out really early they couldn't run the ball against Georgia? Game was over. Um, you know, Ohio State can't get stops on defense. They got to outscore you 48-45 on, on Saturday in the Rose Bowl. Alabama can beat you in so many different ways. And then my only other real takeaway from Alabama's perspective, and then we'll get to this Georgia-Michigan game in a minute. The only other perspective from Alabama's, uh, you know, uh, Alabama-Cincinnati is this, is that um, – you know, we talked about this the other day with Texas A&M, but my biggest takeaway was recruiting matters, right? Because when I look at this game, and I talked about it with A&M, right, is that everybody wants to say, oh, recruiting does you guys in the media, you overhype recruiting, you do it to sell subscriptions, and you do it to do this. No, recruiting matters, and the stats back it up. Uh, I believe it's something like 17 of the last 20 national champions have had a top five recruiting class in the previous four years, and a couple of them were fluky, weird national championships uh, like Auburn with Cam Newton that didn't have, uh, you know, those elite recruiting classes. But basically, if you sign the number one class in the country, I forget the stat now off the top of my head, but I think it was 13 out of 20 teams that have won the national championship this century 13 of the 20 teams that have won one have signed the number, I think it was 11, 11 of 20 have signed the number one class at some point in the last five years, and 17 of 20 have signed at least one top five class uh, in the previous four years leading into the national championship. And so when I look at this game, I saw an incredible stat that Alabama on their roster has 70 plus players that were ranked in the top 300 nationally in recruiting on their roster. Cincinnati had two and that's all that it really comes down to. There is nothing crazy to take away from this game. There is no Cincinnati is terrible. I actually saw uh, Jeff Schwartz, who who, uh, is a former NFL football player. Uh, He does some stuff with Fox Sports Radio. He does some stuff with the Pac-12 Network. I thought he sent out a really good tweet after this game. He said, there's no hot take to take away from this game. It was a game featuring a more talented team playing against a team who couldn't physically match them. Not complicated. Plenty of us had said this would happen in a playoff game, but glad Cincinnati got a chance. They deserve to be here. And when I look at it from Cincinnati's perspective, that's kind of my biggest takeaway, is there really is no hot take for Cincinnati, right? And, and I remember talking about this last year when Gonzaga played Baylor in the men's basketball national championship game. I remember talking about Gonzaga. I remember talking about Baylor. I remember this conversation of, well, this is proof that Gonzaga was overrated all year long. No, Gonzaga was 30-0 going into the national championship game. Gonzaga beat Kansas. They beat West Virginia. They beat Iowa. They won all their tournament games by double figures leading into the Final Four. They beat UCLA in the national title game. And the bottom line for Gonzaga was they weren't overrated. There was just one team that happened to be better than them all season long, and they happened to play that team in the national championship game. And as you learn in life, 
sometimes you're just going to run into somebody that's better than you. I mean, I remember watching that famous Last Dance documentary with Michael Jordan, and there's a scene with Charles Barkley, the year he wins the MVP in 1993 as a member of the Phoenix Suns. And for our younger listeners, yes, Charles Barkley was actually a really good basketball player, not just a great commentator now that says crazy things every Thursday night on TNT. But there's a great scene in that documentary where Charles Barkley essentially says, Every step of my career, I always thought that I was the best player on the court. The only way that I got to the level that I was at as the MVP of the NBA, as the best player, in my opinion, in the world, was to believe that every time I stepped on the court, there was nobody better than me. And then he said, Phoenix, he was with the Phoenix Suns at the time. We get to the finals. And I forget if it was game two, game three, game four, game five, whatever. But there's a game where Charles Barkley has like 44 points. Michael Jordan has 47 or 48. And the Bulls win. And... That Charles Barkley was like, that was the first time in my life I just walked off the court and I said, there is somebody on this planet that is better than me at basketball. And I think when it goes back to the Cincinnati Bearcats, I think that's the only takeaway that you can really have. This doesn't have to be a hot take. It doesn't have to be that Cincinnati didn't belong. It doesn't have to be that the group of five shouldn't be in the college football playoff. It is just that, simply put, Alabama was the better team on the field. And by the way, we all saw what happened in the second game, which we're going to get into in a minute. So it's not as though, uh, you know, if you put Oklahoma State in or if you put Baylor in or if you put Pitt in or if you put Michigan, it was always going to be ugly because Alabama is that much better. Recruiting matters. Stars matter. And I'll finally wrap on Cincinnati by saying this. I give you guys as consumers uh, credit because I, I, I was expecting the onslaught of exactly what I just said. Cincinnati didn't deserve to be there. Cincinnati didn't belong. Shame on them. They shouldn't have been there. No, Cincinnati equated themselves about as well as they could. There have been college football semifinals where it was clear that one team did not belong on the field with another one, and it was embarrassing, right? I go back to a few years ago, uh, Joe Burrow and LSU, and it's fitting that the day that Joe Burrow leads Cincinnati, the Cincinnati Bengals, to the playoff thanks to Jamar Chase uh, in the NFC, in the AFC, in the NFL, um, that we're talking about that 2019 college football playoff. But if you remember Joe Burrow, LSU, uh, that was a game in which Joe Burrow and LSU put up 49 points in the first half. Oklahoma wasn't even close to being competitive. Um, and so I bring it up because there's been plenty of college football semifinals where it was clear that one team didn't belong, one team didn't belong on the field. I didn't see that from Cincinnati. I thought they played hard. I thought they were tough. I thought they were mentally tough. I thought they were... Um, poised I thought they were under control but there are times in life where you just run into a better team and that is exactly what I believe happened with Cincinnati all right let's quickly get to the second semifinal, uh Michigan Georgia and what's really interesting about this one is I, I don't even know how to really describe this one right uh, you know uh, Alabama Cincinnati was at least competitive it was it was close even if it wasn't really competitive the final score 27 to 6 but it was at least close for most of the game Georgia Michigan was an absolute bloodbath final score 34 to 11 and the bottom line was it wasn't even that close as Georgia just wins convincingly from beginning to end it was never really competitive and I'll tell you this what was really interesting about this game from my perspective was it was the first time that this has ever happened to me and I don't know if this has happened to you guys when you make bets and talk to your buddies, talk to your wife, talk to your husband. I'm picking this team, and here's why. And even before kickoff, you know, oh, wait a second now. My logic doesn't even make sense, right? Because it's one thing if there's an injury. It's one thing if there's a suspension. It's one thing if there's a coaching this, if COVID happens. But I just realized about four or five hours before kickoff, oh, crap. 
I picked Michigan, and my logic for picking Michigan doesn't even make sense. And let me explain. So I was hosting Doug Gottlieb's show on Fox Sports Radio on Friday. We were hosting during the Alabama-Cincinnati game. Uh, But during the show, I was starting to talk about a lot of the stuff that I talked about on last Thursday's show. If you listen to last Thursday's show, you heard my predictions. I had Alabama beating Cincinnati 34-24, and I had Michigan beating Georgia 30-17. And my logic for picking Cincinnati to keep things close against Alabama, going back to the first game for a second, it was pretty simple. I said, look, this Alabama thing is incredible. Credit to Nick Saban. They won the biggest game that they had to in the biggest moment that they had to. They deserve credit for the performance that they put up in the SEC championship game. But what I said was, and my argument against picking Alabama to blow out Cincinnati was, there was a 12-game sample size before that SEC championship game that Alabama is good this year, but not elite. And I am not letting one 60-minute game against Georgia skew how I feel about Alabama based over the last four or five months. That was why I picked Alabama-Cincinnati. Here was the problem. I picked Michigan to beat Georgia basically using the exact opposite logic of Alabama-Cincinnati. Alabama, I said, wait a second now. We have a 12-game sample size that we realize that Alabama is good but not elite. So that is why I'm picking Cincinnati. But then I just decided, you know what? Screw the first 12 games for Georgia. I'm picking Michigan. And I was like, wait a second, that logic doesn't even make sense. I didn't feel good, and right away I knew I was on the wrong side of this. And it was just complete domination from beginning to end. There really is no other way to put it. Uh, Georgia was up 14-0 after the first quarter. Uh, They were up 27-3 at halftime. It was never really close. It was never really competitive. Michigan scored its only touchdown with their backup quarterback in. And what Georgia did was they just cut off the head of the snake, right? I just talked a minute ago about Alabama being able to beat you in so many different ways. Well, Michigan can only beat you one way, and it starts with them controlling the line of scrimmage. And that was when you started to realize pretty early things were not going to go well for Michigan because Georgia was flying around. Georgia looked great. Georgia looked like those old dogs. How about my dogs? (laughs) How about my dogs? They look like the team that we saw the first 12 weeks of the season. And really, what this game actually reminded me of, ironically, and this is going to sound weird, It actually reminded me of the opener against Clemson. And if you remember that game, the final score, Georgia 10, Clemson 3. But Clemson in that game, if you go back to that Georgia game on opening weekend, it was very much the same. Where very early on in the process, you realize, oh my goodness, Clemson has absolutely no answer for Georgia. In that Clemson game, Clemson finished with 180 yards of total offense. They finished with two yards rushing on 23 carries in that game. And you realize very early in that Clemson game, oh my God, the size, the speed, the athleticism, the physicality, they have no answer. And that was, of course, essentially what Georgia did to most teams this year, except for Alabama. But the Michigan game reminded me very much of the same, which was like, it only took about one or two percent. You're like, Michigan has never seen what Georgia has on the field right now. And Michigan isn't going to come up with an answer because Michigan, again, a lot like I just said a minute ago, I was talking about Alabama. I was talking about how Alabama can win multiple ways. Michigan beats you by starting beating you at the line of scrimmage. They start by beating you at the point of attack. And the second that you realize, wait a second now, they just don't have enough speed. They don't have enough, you know, they don't have enough physicality to overwhelm Georgia at the point of attack. They can't get outside with their speed. They have no answers on offense, and it was proven very much correct. They finished the game with 97 yards rushing on the game. Uh, it came out to 91 yards rushing, excuse me. It came out to three and a half yards per carry, but that was really deceptive. A lot of that came late. A lot of that came courtesy of J.J. McCarthy, the backup quarterback who came in and made a few big plays with his feet. Um, but 
you realize that they have no way to attack, and you realize that this is going to get ugly really, really, really quickly. And again, it's a credit to Georgia, and it's a credit to Michigan for getting here, right? Uh, Michigan had a great season. And part of this, it's a lot like Cincinnati, and I'm not comparing Michigan, a blue blood, power five, uh, you know, historically great program to upstart Cincinnati. But you kind of come out of this game and you say, look, Georgia was the best team all year. Georgia had a bad game against Alabama. I'm not excusing it. Alabama fans are going to say, oh, my God, here it goes. People are making excuses for Georgia. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is it doesn't take away from the fact that Michigan deserved to be here. 12-1 and coming into this game. Big Ten champs. They beat Ohio State. They beat Penn State. They beat Wisconsin. They beat Iowa. They won on the road. They beat Nebraska. Like, they deserve to be here. But Georgia was just simply the better team. And so now that we can move past that, credit to Michigan, great year. I hope that this is a turning point in the Michigan-Ohio State rivalry where it's a little bit more competitive. We'll talk about Ohio State in a minute because it was a really fun game, but they also have major issues on the defensive end. Now I think we can turn our attention to that college football national championship game. And what I would say is we do have a full I don't know, 10 days, you know, eight days or so to preview that game. We'll preview it a little bit on Wednesday. We'll preview a little bit on Friday. And of course, we'll have a big time preview next Monday in the lead up to that national championship game where Georgia will play Alabama. But I think as I start to look at it from the 30,000 foot view, and I'll kind of do what I did last week where on Monday, I gave my first thoughts on the college football playoff semifinals. Then Thursday, I really broke it down. Here are my first thoughts. And I think the first thought is a total positive if you are a college football fan and if you are hoping for a competitive national championship game. The first thought is Alabama in the Cincinnati semifinal, they kind of looked a little bit more like the team that we saw all year, good but not great, the team that beat Arkansas by seven, beat Auburn by two in a double overtime win, beat Florida by two. They look like that team more, good but not elite. Now, part of it was they didn't really ask Bryce Young to do too much, but they looked the way that they kind of looked over those first 12 games. And oh, by the way, Georgia definitely looked like the way that they did over their first 12 games where they're flying around on defense, where they're fearless, where they're running the ball right at you, where they're challenging you to stop them, where Stetson Bennett is making just enough plays to keep the defense honest. And Georgia was awesome. And so I think if you're looking towards that college football national championship game, the first positive is maybe we really did see something in Atlanta um, Maybe we did see something in Atlanta that is worth noting here, which is that it is possible that in the biggest game that everybody was watching, Alabama played their absolute best game of the season, and Georgia played its absolute worst game. Not excusing Georgia, not saying that Georgia, you know, that, that Alabama doesn't deserve to... What I am simply saying is that if you're looking for a hopeful, close, interesting semifinal or a national championship game... You have the saving grace of Alabama looked like a lot from that team earlier this year. Georgia looked like a lot from their team earlier this year. Beyond that, a couple things in terms of what I hope to see from the game. First of all, I think Georgia, they have to stick to what Georgia does. And I thought it, it was really, really, really interesting because you go back to that first game in Atlanta. It's easy to forget this now. Georgia was actually up 10-0 on Alabama at one point in that game. And then all of a sudden, Alabama came back. They hit a few big plays. To their credit, they did what they needed to do. And Georgia was just like shell shock. Like Georgia just didn't know what hit him. And so I think the biggest thing for Georgia is one, sticking to what they do. Go back to the game against Michigan. 521 yards of total offense. About 60% of, 60 of it was through the air. About 40% of it was rushing. Thir Stetson Bennett, 31 pass attempts. 35 rush attempts for Georgia. 
you need to have that balance. You need to stay true to who you are. And you need to also, in many ways, keep Bryce Young off the field. So to me, though, that's kind of the key is one – um, you know, come in confident, stay confident, play with that swagger that you've had all year. You had swagger against Clemson. You had swagger against Arkansas when you won 37 nothing. You had swagger against Auburn, against Kentucky, against Michigan in the college football playoff. The one game that you lost your confidence and never regained it was the college was the SEC championship game against Alabama. You need to stay focused. One big play, one touch. You can't let it determine who you are, what you're about, all that good stuff. Secondly, what I would say is the Stetson Bennett that we saw in the college football semifinal against Michigan State, if you can get that Stetson Bennett, that makes things a lot more interesting. And I know I've talked a lot about Stetson Bennett, and I talked a lot about him after that, that, that SEC championship game. But part of it is on the run game, right? And again, we, we go back to that, that Alabama game where Stetson Bennett threw the ball 48 times. Uh, you're, you get up early, and then you abandon the run. Stetson Bennett uh, runs, uh, throws the ball 48 times. You run the ball 30 times. There is not quite that balance. But the Stetson Bennett that we saw aided by the running game against Michigan was very, very, very good and made some big plays. I mean, he had a couple really nice little little throws uh, kind of over the top of the defense. Um, you start talking about some of the big plays in terms of the touchdown scores. Uh, you know, you look back in that game, uh, there, was a, there was a deep pass to Jermaine Burton late in the second quarter that really opened up the game. There was a, a, a big play to James Cook in the fourth quarter that basically sealed the victory. And so I just bring it up to very simply say, if that Stetson Bennett shows up, I like Georgia's chances to at least be competitive and not get embarrassed. Now, I think the final thing that I would say, and I think it's something that we won't know the answer to until we get there, it's Saban versus Kirby, baby. We know what the history is. We know what the track record is. And what's kind of crazy is it's not just that Kirby is 0-4 against Nick Saban now. It's that three of the games were just embarrassing losses on the biggest stage. The stage of a national championship game where Tua replaces Jalen Hurts where you're up at halftime. The stage the following year in the SEC championship game where, again, you're up at halftime. Jalen Hurts replaces Tua because Tua gets hurt and you still end up losing that game. And then, of course, in this, in this uh, SEC championship game earlier this year, uh, there's been weird decisions. There was the Justin Fields stuff a few years ago. And so what I would say is that's kind of what this comes down to. Last little thought on not only this game, but, uh, you know, the, the national championship game. I think it'll be interesting to just follow Kirby Smart in general and kind of the narrative surrounding him. Um, I, I would argue that in many ways, uh, this Michigan game, I, I thought was one of the most important of his career. And let me explain why. Not saying if he loses to Alabama 41 to three, he's not going to feel some heat. But I think if you lose that semifinal to, Alabama, to Michigan earlier uh, this weekend, after you lose to Alabama the way you did, after a season in which you were 12-0 and we believed you were the definitive worst team, I'm not saying that Kirby Smart would have come out of that semifinal if they had lost to Michigan, quote-unquote, on the hot seat, or quote-unquote, he'd get fired. But I think there would be kind of a belief Kirby is definitively a fraud. He's a great recruiter, nothing else. He can't get the job done. He can't win the games that matter, all that good stuff. Now you go to Indiana, you go to Indianapolis, second national championship game in five years. You're in the upper echelon. You're right on the brink, and we see what happens from there. Not saying that if Nick if Nick Saban beats his brains in in a couple weeks, that the narrative doesn't flip back that you can't beat Nick Saban. But guess what? A lot of people can't beat Nick Saban. But if you lose to Jim Harbaugh, if you lose to Michigan in that game after the 12-0 regular season, after the Alabama beatdown, I think there are a ton of questions about Kirby Smart coming out of that game. Now he gets another shot in national championship. He gets another shot at his mentor. But yeah, 
I think that's all I really got on those two college football playoff semifinals. And as I said, over the next few weeks, we'll really spend a lot more time kind of breaking down, uh, or the next few weeks, the next few episodes, I should say, breaking down this game as it heads towards the national championship game a week from tonight in Indianapolis. All right, this is what I want to do. I want to take a quick break. I want to come back, and we will talk a little bit about the Matt Corral stuff and about Ohio State, because that Ohio State game was a classic. I'll be right back. All right, everybody. I'm back. Going to be back. Going to be back. And I do want to switch gears, and I do want to wrap on two other non-college football playoff topics that came up over the course of the weekend, and I think they're kind of related, but I, I you know, they are important. We got to talk about them. So let's get into them. Let's discuss. Let's debate. We'll get to the Rose Bowl in a second, but let's start with what happened in the Sugar Bowl with Matt Corral, Ole Miss, and Baylor. And the Sugar Bowl was awesome. The Sugar Bowl was great. Great story. Two teams that unquestionably overachieved this season. On one side, you have Ole Miss. First 10-win season in school history in the regular season under Lane Kiffin this year. Great season. They beat Texas A&M. They beat Arkansas by 1-52-51, whatever the final score was. They beat this team. They beat that team. They play well. They do. Great story from Ole Miss. Great story from Baylor, who under the second year, of, uh, you know, under Dave Aranda in their second year, win the Big 12, go to the Sugar Bowl. Of course, all the oxygen got sucked out of the room. All the great storylines that came out of the game were ruined because we had a much bigger storyline that came out of it. And that storyline was this. Early in the first quarter, Matt Corral, Ole Miss's star quarterback, goes down with an ankle injury in a game which he could have opted out in. And as soon as it happened, you know what I thought of? I thought of, you know what I thought of? I thought of your, your high school history Greek mythology class, okay? Because do you remember in Greek mythology, Helen of Troy? Helen of Troy, she was supposedly so beautiful, they say she had a face that launched a thousand ships. What does that mean? She was so beautiful, she basically started a war in ancient Greece. Well, that was what Matt Corral's ankle was. He, was the, he had the ankle that launched a thousand Twitter hot takes as Matt Corral goes down with injury and immediately everybody loses their mind. And I want to give you a quick backstory before we get into Matt Corral, his decision, all that good stuff. But as a quick backstory, let's get into it because bowl game opt-outs now over the last five, six, seven years, they've become a big thing. They started with Christian McCaffrey and Leonard Fournette, I want to say around 2016 or so, both of them electing not to play in a bowl game. Um, And at the time, it was a huge deal. The idea behind them opting out of a bowl game was the bowl game didn't count for anything. It wasn't the college football playoff. It was ultimately an exhibition. And so the best thing that they could do to protect their NFL draft stock was to opt out of the bowl game. And so from there, it has become a big, huge talking point every single season, every single year we get to bowl games. Every time there is a player that is a high-level NFL draft pick, uh, every single year, every single time they have a decision to make. Some of them decide to opt out of the bowl games, and we saw quite a bit of it this year. Garrett Wilson, Chris Olave, four Ohio State Buckeyes in total opted out of the Rose Bowl. David Bell, George Karofalos opted out of the Music City Bowl for Purdue. Uh, Kyron Williams, Kyle Hamilton opted out of the, the, the Fiesta Bowl for Notre Dame. But then there are other guys that decide to play, and Matt Corral was one of them. And the great irony about Matt Corral, of course, is that Matt Corral actually probably had more reason to sit out of the Sugar Bowl than anyone did to opt out, period. 
Matt Corral projected first round pick, not necessarily the first quarterback off the board, but projected first round pick. But more importantly, when it comes to Matt Corral, here's why it was totally justifiable for him to sit out of this bowl game is because Matt Corral has been dealing with this brutal, awful ankle injury all season long to the point that he basically spent the second half of the year. He wasn't even practicing during the week. I remember Lane Kiffin at a, at a, at a press conference basically explaining like, look, we use all week to get him healthy to play on Saturdays, then he immediately re-aggravates the injury, and then we spend the next week getting him ready for the next game, and then he re-aggravates it again. So Matt Corral had a million reasons to, to opt out of this bowl game, but decides, you know what? I have decided that I want to play in this game. I feel healthy. I want to be with my brothers. I want to wear that old Miss jersey one more time. And it was interesting because during the broadcast, they really did play it up. I thought almost too much about, oh, he wants to be with his brothers, and he wants to do this, and he wants to do that. It's like, the guy wants to play football. Whatever. It's not that big of a deal. Of course, then, about halfway through the first quarter, Matt Corral scrambles, Matt Corral gets hit, Matt Corral goes down, Matt Corral cannot put any weight on his lower body. And as soon as that happens, as I said, Helena Troy, face that launched a thousand ships, Matt Corral, the ankle that launched a thousand Twitter hot takes, because the second that it happened, you know what happened? Everybody rushed to Twitter, and everybody believes that opt-outs are okay, that you need to opt-out, that you're an idiot if you don't opt-out, if you have a chance to be drafted high in the NFL draft. They all, this is why you have to opt-out. This is why it's idiot. Can we shut up? Can we shut up? Can we stop? And can we just say this? Matt Corral is not your martyr. Matt Corral did not make the right or wrong decision, and Matt Corral made the decision that he believed was best for him. Okay, so can you stop saying he was right? Can you stop saying he was wrong? Can you stop saying he did this? Can you stop saying he did that? Because the bottom line is there's only one person that knows what's in Matt Corral's head and knows what's best for Matt Corral, and that is Matt Corral. And to talk about it in the bigger picture for a second, let me say this. I think most of you know where I stand on this, and it's the least hot take ever. I have no fundamental objections to players opting out of bowl games, okay? If you've listened to this show the last few weeks, you might agree with this. You might disagree. You might think I'm an idiot because I picked Michigan and I am an idiot. But the one thing that you have not heard on this podcast over the last three, four, five weeks, I have never once criticized Kenny Pickett for opting out of the Peach Bowl. I have never once criticized Kenneth Walker for opting out of the Peach Bowl. I've never once criticized Garrett Wilson or Chris Olave for opting out of the Rose Bowl. I have never once criticized David Bell for opting out of the Music City Bowl. I believe that all those guys had, the, had to make the best decision for them, and I believe they did, in their minds, make the best decision for them. And that's one thing. I have never criticized them on this show. You want me to take it a step further? I actually think most of you guys and girls understand as well. It's really interesting, right? And I know Kirk Herbstreet made some comments, and that kind of set this whole thing off again. And, of course, when Matt Corral gets hurt, it makes Kirk Herbstreet look bad. But I'll be honest. I think this is kind of like one of the most overcovered stories in all of college football. Because I listen to you guys and girls. I talk to some of you. I see the comments on social media. And when a guy decides to opt out, I actually find that most of you guys are cool with it. It's not just me. It's not me being totally out on an island saying, oh my goodness, he made the decision that was best for him. Good for him. He wants to sit out, sit out. It's all you guys too. When Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave opted out of the Rose Bowl, I went and looked at the comments. 95% of them were positive. I looked when Traylon Burks decided to opt out of the Outback Bowl for Arkansas this year. Basically, all of them were like, we love you. Thank you for what you did for this program. Go be a star in the NFL. So I think it's actually an overcovered part of this. But what bothers me about the Matt Corral decision is in the same way that it's not my 
right to criticize Kenny Pickett or Garrett Wilson or Traylon Burks or David Bell for opting out of a bowl game? It's also no one's right to criticize Matt Corral for doing what he thought was best. It is not your right to tell him that he is right or wrong for doing what he wanted to do. And on Saturday, what he wanted to do was play in that bowl game and be with his friends and play one more time and wear that old Miss jersey. And so I'm so tired of everything being having to be black and white and it's this or that and it's right or wrong. And what I'm really tired of is other people telling other people what is best for them. And I've talked about it a lot on this show. I talk about it with bowl opt-outs. I talk about it with NFL or NBA draft decisions. And I've said it on this show before when it comes to NBA draft time. I have never once criticized a player for leaving college after one year. I've never once criticized a player for going overseas or choosing the G League or choosing. I've said, I think it's the wrong decision. I've said, I think that, um, you know, I think there's upside that you're not considering when it comes to college, but I've never said you're wrong. I've said personally, if it was me, I would think about the other side, but I never said RJ Hampton was wrong for choosing Australia. I said, I think some of his logic doesn't make sense, but I didn't say he was wrong. I didn't say Jalen Green was wrong for choosing the G League. I didn't say Kenny Pickett was wrong for choosing the G League. And in the same way that I said that, it's no one's business to tell Matt Corral that he was wrong for deciding to play in the game. To kind of wrap it up and to put a bow on this, can I say one more thing about this? We got to stop talking about these bowl opt-outs like it's a zero-sum game, okay? We have to stop talking about them as if if you play in this game, it is all downside, it is all risk, and there is no benefit, okay? Because that's not true. Like everything else, like I just said, it's black. It's not black and white, it's gray, okay? There's a lot of gray here, and there is a lot of upside to playing in these games. One, you just get to play football. And if you love playing football, and if it's awesome, and if you don't know how many games, there's nothing wrong with that. But beyond that, can we stop talking about this like, like there is no upside at all for Matt Corral to play in this game if he so chooses? And by the way, if he had opted out, I would have had no problem with it either. Because if he decides to play, guess what happens? I just looked at a mock draft as I was getting ready to do this podcast. Most recent mock draft, and I just picked one, and it's super random, so it's not the, the be-all, end-all. It had Matt Corral as the 15th overall pick. It had him as the second quarterback off the board. Well, what happens if Matt Corral goes to that Sugar Bowl? And what happens if Matt Corral doesn't get injured? And what happens if Matt Corral plays the game of his life? He has that C.J. Stroud 573 yards, 567 touchdown passes. What happens then? What happens if Matt Corral, by playing in the bowl game, not only doesn't get hurt, but puts on the performance of a lifetime, and all of a sudden, now we start talking about, well, what about the, uh, maybe we got to move him up the boards. And maybe he makes a couple million dollars. Maybe he goes from the 15th pick to the ninth pick. Maybe he goes from the second quarterback off the board to the first quarterback off the board. Not saying it's going to happen, but it's not inconceivable either. We see it all the time. I remember doing this podcast last year after a playoff game in which Justin Fields outplayed Trevor Lawrence, and there was real talk. Should Justin Fields go off the board ahead of Trevor Lawrence? Now, it didn't happen, but there was real talk, and there's no reason to think that it couldn't happen in the Matt Corral versus Kenny Pickett debate if you believe those are the top two quarterbacks. On top of that, it's not like there isn't other opportunities and other positives that come out of playing a game like that either. Think about Jalen Suggs in the Final Four last year. Think about Jalen Suggs, um, you know, think about Jalen Suggs, that shot that he hit against UCLA. How many millions of dollars did Jalen Suggs make off that one shot? Now think about Matt Corral. Now think about the Sugar Bowl. Now think about if he throws for 550 yards, if he throws for 60 Ds. Even if he doesn't move up the draft, you don't think he's more marketable to Nike or Adidas or Under Armour 
or Subway or Chipotle or whoever else wants to sponsor them. So I don't want to go on and on. I don't want to belabor the point because I do want to talk about that awesome Rose Bowl game. But I just want to say, can we stop? Can you stop making Matt Corral a martyr? Can you stop trying to tell him what is right and wrong for him? And can you instead let the kid live his life and do what's best for him? All right, finally, how about we go ahead and wrap on a little bit of a positive note here? Because, listen, it feels like there's been a little too much negativity on this show. We complained about the college football playoff games that, frankly, weren't very good. We obviously spent a lot of time talking about Matt Corral. Was it right? Was it wrong? Who's allowed to decide what Matt Corral should do? So let's end on a positive. It's a new year, new me, new you, 2022. So let's talk Rose Bowl. Because you talk about a way to start off the year in style. How about this? Ohio State 48, Utah 45, instant classic, one of the best college football games that has ever been played, okay? And yes, I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a, a hot take. I don't think it's an opinion. I think it's a fact. It was one of the single best college football games I've ever seen. Yes, I know defense was optional, but part of it was it was just dudes making plays, right? First of all, Ohio State, 500, seven, almost 700 yards of total offense. C.J. Stroud, 573 yards passing. And if you did not know the name Jackson Smith and Jigba before, my, oh, my, oh, my. Do you know that name now? Jackson Smith and Jigba, this guy burst onto the scene, I thought, in the Nebraska game. If you guys listen to this podcast, you know I watch way too much Nebraska football. But this kid was unbelievable in the Nebraska game, 240 yards receiving. And it was like, how does this guy keep getting so wide open? Well, as it turns out, it wasn't just Nebraska. Scott Frost, don't blame him. Don't blame Nebraska. Jackson Smith and Jigba against a very good Utah team and credit Utah on an incredible season. How about this? 347 yards receiving. It was insane, right? I was preparing for my Fox Sports Radio show on Saturday night, and it's crazy. I'm putting together my stats, and I'm putting together my notes, and I'm doing this, and I'm doing that, and I write down Jackson Smith and Jigba. 247 yards receiving, and I'm like, oh my God, what a game that he had. And then I checked a little closer. My eyes are going bad, and it was 347 yards. Sets an FBS bowl game record. Breaks Terry Glenn's Ohio State receiving record. He did it by the end of the third quarter. Breaks the Rose Bowl record set by Keyshawn Johnson. So when you're breaking records set by Terry Glenn, a former first-round pick, and Keyshawn Johnson, the number one overall pick in the, dra in the draft in 1996, you know you're doing something right. Have a day, Jackson Smith and Jigba. And what was kind of crazy about this game was that this was kind of the game where, in theory, you'd think that a kid like this would be slowed down. I just talked about it a minute ago with Matt Corral. Ohio State had not one, but two first-round receivers opt out of this game. Garrett Wilson opted out of this game. Chris Olave opted out of this game. Both of those guys are going to be first-round picks when the NFL draft is held in April in Vegas. Jackson Smith and Jigba instead sets a receiving record, and I got to say, he kind of reminds me of Cooper Cup. It was funny. I was watching uh, the NFL on Sunday. Shout out Antonio Brown, who retired mid-game. I'm not talking about Antonio Brown, but, you know, it's, it's funny because I, I was watching the Rams game, and I saw my buddy Colin Cowher tweet this, but he said, Cooper Cup is not only the best wide receiver in the NFL, 
But it seems like he's always open, and it's like that is the gift of being a great route runner, a great wide receiver, understanding the offense, is the ability to get open when you should never be open because you're clearly the best player, and that's exactly what Jackson Smith and Jigba did time after time after time, play after play after play, series after series after series, incredible game, incredible win, incredible effort from both teams, and that's really how I want to wrap because for the last month, You've seen people in the media. You've heard people talk about the idea again. We talked about opt-outs last segment with Matt Corral, and we talked about uh, quote-unquote meaningless bowl games, okay? Well, if you think bowl games are meaningless, I hope you did not watch the Rose Bowl because that could not be the furthest thing from the truth. And I'll be honest, I don't really even under... I, I think that the Rose Bowl proved once and for all that there will never be such a thing as a meaningless bowl game as long as bowl games are played. And it's not to say, and this is another conversation for another day, and maybe we talk about it at some point in the offseason, it's not to say that I'm not in favor of expanding the playoff, but at the same time, even if we expand the playoff, we are still going to have these middle to bottom tier bowl games. Maybe the Rose Bowl will never not be part of the playoff, I don't know. But if you think the Boca Raton Bowl is going anywhere, you think the Cheez-It Bowl is going anywhere, you think the Pinstripe Bowl is going anywhere, you are sadly mistaken. They make too much money for ESPN and the, the networks. Uh, people watch them. They're great for... There's a reason that all of these games are on, and it's because everybody watches them. There's nothing to do. It fills a ton of programming during a week where there's not much else going on. And so these bowl games aren't going anywhere. But to me, this game proved beyond a reasonable doubt that anytime two teams get on the field, there is going... And there are there is something to be played for. Not an exhibition, not a preseason, not resting your starters. But in a game that matters, in a game where there is a winner and loser, there is never going to be such a thing as meaningless bowl games. And so it's so funny to me, right? Because first of all, I love the idea, like when I hear all these stories about meaningless bowl game this and meaningless bowl game that, it cracks me up because this is a conversation, like the, the idea of being motivated or not motivated for a bowl game, that has basically been going on as long as there have been actual bowl games, okay? I've been watching college football for close to 30 years now. Conversations about who's excited to be there and who is not, those have been going on forever. I was watching college football, forget the playoff. I was watching college football before the BCS. And even at that time, people talked about, well, this team thought they were going to the Rose Bowl and they ended up in this bowl. This team thought they were going to play this team for a national. This team lost to their rival. The conversation about about wanting to be in certain bowl games has been going on forever. But what I believe that Saturday proved was, once you get competitive athletes on a field together, competing, lining up against each other, you are going to get the best out of them, especially on a stage like the Rose Bowl, especially in a game that is so big, and especially a game that has real meaning, real impact, even if it doesn't, quote-unquote, uh, isn't part of the playoff. I mean, think about Ohio State. You're coming off that loss to Michigan. You got embarrassed against your rival. You lost for the first time to your rival in a decade. You think that Ohio State didn't want to put their best foot forward on Saturday? You think that they were coming there to do nothing, to, to, to you know, uh, get a free trip to Pasadena, take a trip to Disney World and get out? No! They came to win. Utah goes without saying. We know it was at stake for them. First Pac-12 title, you, know, you knew they were going to be ready to go. But part of this, too, that I don't think enough people realize is, yes, there are always going forward going to be people that opt out. But at the same time, what I would also say is this. What I think gets underappreciated about these bowl games is this. Is that, yeah, there's going to be people that opt out, but you know what it also means? It also means next man up. 
And that was what stood out to me about Ohio State on Saturday, okay? Everyone's talking about, oh, the opt-outs, this, and this, and this. You know what I saw? I saw three, four guys that decided, you know what? I have to protect my future. It's in my best interest not to be a part of this game. I saw a bunch of guys that were super excited to be part of this game, knowing that it was their first chance to have a real opportunity to show their fan base, show their coaches what they're capable of. Not sure if you paid attention. There was a kid. His name's Marvin Harrison Jr. You may know his dad, Marvin Harrison. He was awesome forever with the Indianapolis Colts and Peyton Manning. Marvin Harrison Jr. is a five-star freshman at Ohio State this year. Marvin Harrison Jr. played behind Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson. Marvin Harrison Jr. had five total catches this entire season. He had six in the Rose Bowl, three for touchdowns. You think that guy's not excited to be on the field? You think that that guy is not excited to be playing in the Rose Bowl? You think that guy's not excited that his first big game, the first meaningful snaps that he's taking at Ohio State are in front of 100,000 people in Pasadena, and he's balling the heck out? Same with Emeka Abuka, the number one wide receiver in the country last year. Same with Julian Fleming, a, a five-star from a previous year who hasn't had his opportunity. You think those guys aren't excited? And so the idea, like, like this is what bothers me about the idea of meeting. There's always somebody that it's their first chance, it's their first opportunity, and they're excited to be there. And that's awesome. And that's great. Finally, what I would say, and, and I think this is something that gets completely lost. Look, we're going to have these, these opt-outs. It's, it, it's part of the deal going forward. There's nothing we can do. But I bring it up because in a lot of ways, I think all these bowl games are going to turn into is exactly what I just said. Is a, uh, you know, is a, uh, a stage, is an opportunity for other guys who have not played and, and, and really start to build towards the next season, Okay. Um, because I was thinking about this after the Ohio State game. I think you can argue that Ohio State fans are more excited right now coming off of that bowl game than they would have been if all of their players had opted in and they had played in that bowl game. And let me explain why. Yes, the defense struggled. Yes, the defense is going to be a talk, talking point on sports talk radio in Columbus going forward all offseason long. But at the same time, what I would also say about Ohio State is this, is that if they had everybody play, if Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson and everybody had played in this game, yeah, it would have been a fun kind of going out party and it would have been cool and maybe we win and we have a good time. But now think about how much more excited Ohio State fans are going into next year because of the guys that did opt out. One, you got to see a pissed off C.J. Stroud. I, I, I guess C.J. Stroud thought he should have won the Heisman Trophy. I, I heard a, 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 on the radio call I was driving into to work I heard on the radio call they were talking about this. I did not realize that C.J. Stroud thought he should win the Heisman Trophy. But independent of that, you got a pissed off C.J. Stroud. You got to see him with the young guys, and you got to see what next year's team is going to look like. So instead of having that sour taste in your mouth after the Michigan game, you now got to see what essentially what that 2022 Buckeyes roster is going to look like. And so, yes, they need work, and yes, the defense, they, whatever. It was a great game. It was an awesome game. And I think this is the future of non-playoff bowl games where you get a chance to see the young guys, you get a chance to build some momentum, and you get a chance to build real excitement going into next season. But mostly just credit Ohio State, credit Utah for putting on an incredible performance. All right. I think that's it for this episode of the Air Tour Sports Podcast. I have gone on long enough, but I want to thank you guys for listening. Great episode, fun episode, and Happy New Year. It's great to be back. It's great to be here. And I want to thank you 
again for everything that you guys do for this show, everything that you guys uh, everything that you guys do for your support. December, as I said on the last episode, the most downloaded month in the history of the Aaron Sports Podcast. Before we get out of here, make sure if you're not already, subscribe Aaron Sports Podcast, Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure to subscribe, rate, review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Did not mention, our merch is rolling. If you want your Arkansas Big Pig Invasion shirt, make sure AaronTorresOnline.com slash merchandise. If you want your Kentucky Revenge Tours, Kentucky gets set to play LSU next uh, on Tuesday. We'll talk about that game on Wednesday's show. Get your Revenge Tour t-shirt at AaronTorresOnline.com slash merchandise. So the merchandise is rolling. Uh, but that's about it. That's about it. Obviously, I'll be back Wednesday. We're, by the way, I think I mentioned this off the top, but we are back to three episodes a week now. Uh, really excited to get back onto a normal schedule. Uh, we'll talk some hoops next episode, but today was obviously heavy college football. We'll probably talk a little bit more about Georgia-Alabama as well. With that said, though, I think it's time for me to get out of here. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel who hates my voice. I will be back on Wednesday with an all-new episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.